0: Good evening. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Joel. One of the things I would like us to learn this year is to say the books of the minor prophets in order. So this is going to be recorded, so say it good and loud. Say them with me. Let's do it. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we believe that every portion of your word is inspired and profitable. Lord, even the portions which are less read and the portions with which we are less familiar. So Lord, tonight, as we look into this book, which is not often read, this book, which is not often quoted, I pray, Lord, that we would treat it as what it is, and that is truth, truth from you, the Word of God. Be with me as I preach. I pray that I would be filled with joy, and I pray, Lord, that each person, even though the day is late, would be attentive to hear, to understand, to listen, and to do. And so now, Lord, we commit the preaching of your Word into your hands by the power of your Spirit so that your Son might be exalted. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, The book of Joel was probably written by Joel. His name means Yahweh is God. Uh, The covenant name of God, Yahweh, El, is God. Yahweh, El, Joel, Yahweh is God. His name only appears once in the Bible, and that is in chapter 1, verse 1. It's a name that has been used by many people in history, by many famous people. But currently, the name Joel is becoming less and less popular in the United States. In fact, in a 2021 ranking, it is the 211th most popular masculine baby name in America in the year 2021. The high-water mark, high mark, at least as long as we've been keeping statistics, the high-water mark for the name Joel came in 1981 when it ranked 65th most popular masculine baby name. Now, currently, the two most famous Joels in America are Joel Osteen, and he is a false teacher and Joel Rivera, who is a member of North Shore Baptist Church, who is not who is not a false teacher. So that's the first name Joel. When it comes to using the surname or the last name Joel, well, the prize goes to Billy Joel, who is from Hicksville, Long Island. So hold on to that thought. Our three points tonight are the chastening, the commands, and the culmination, the chastening, the commands, and the culmination. But even though those are our points, I want you to remember those points, and I want you to associate them with the book of Joel. And so I have varied them, and I have renamed them, and here are our three points tonight from a different perspective using Billy Joel titles. First of all, we are going to look at Scenes from a Judean Restaurant... Secondly, we are going to look at honesty, and third, a new covenant state of mind. If you don't know what that means, you are in the majority. But here's one thing that you do need to know with reference to the length of my message. I will be preaching for the longest time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Point number one, the chastening, the chastening or scenes from a Judean restaurant. We're not told when the book of Joel was written. There are no historical markers. The commentary writers are varied as to when they think it was written. But we are pretty sure that it was written to the southern kingdom of Judah. The reason that we believe this is because the book of Joel has a lot to say about temple worship. And the temple was located in the southern kingdom of Judah in the city of Jerusalem. You remember that Israel was one big happy country and they had 12 tribes and everybody was living together peacefully and they had three kings. They had Saul, they had David, and they had Solomon. But after the death of Solomon, there was a break. There was a division and the one country divided into two. The northern tribes, or the northern kingdom of Israel, known as Israel, with its capital in Samaria, consisted of 10 tribes. The southern kingdom, and that's what we're talking about tonight, the southern kingdom had its capital in Jerusalem, and they were only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Well, Joel ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah, and the reason why we know that is because temple worship is mentioned in the book, and the temple was in Jerusalem, and the, the, the city of Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom. So, as we look at the circumstance that prompts the writing of the book, it is a devastating invasion of locusts, whereby the insects move through the land and eat everything. They eat everything. Uh, we are going to be citing some of the verses which show what the locusts do. But I want to, this evening, read for the next three minutes the first chapter of Joel. And I want you to pay attention. And there's there's really nothing, there's no like hidden meaning here. This is talking about an actual locust invasion upon the people of Israel. It's undated, but that's what it says. Hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell it to your, tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation, and the nation being referred to here is the nation of locust, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It is Stripped off their bark and thrown it down, their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. That is, farmers. Wail, O vine dressers. For the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. The trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Not only are is, is, is everything that grows dead, but also notice that the hearts and the morale of the people has also dried up. What are they to do? Verse 13. Put on sackcloth, lament, O priest, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of God, because the drain offering and the drink offering are withered from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and destruction from the Almighty and, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before your eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herd herds of the cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. The fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beast of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. This is awful. And as we try to understand this book and apply it to our circumstances and to our lives, uh, let's make sure that as we look at this, we don't make the mistake of interpreting this message as a message for the United States of America, as if we, as a nation, are the covenant people of God. Maybe you look at the gas prices or you look at the uh, lack of baby formula that is available to us today and you say, well, this is happening because God is cursing us as a nation because we are his covenant people. We are not his covenant people. We have never been his covenant people. We will never be his covenant people. This was a message for Judah. And they, at the time, were in a covenant relationship with God. And they received national blessings, and they received national curses, which corresponded to their obedience or disobedience to the covenant, which was the law of Moses. And so the book of Joel is not a warning, nor is it a promise to Joe Biden and the United States of America. Uh, Furthermore, we cannot listen to what we just read and draw a one-to-one correlation or correspondence between... The wickedness of a group of people and natural disasters, uh, things like hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, fires, floods, uh, volcanic eruptions, uh, earthquakes, uh, Hurricane Katrina, I can remember very well back in two thousand and five when Katrina hit New Orleans, and everyone said, "Well, of course, this is god 's judgment on New Orleans because New Orleans is such a wicked city." No, that is not true. The the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and natural disasters fall on the just and the unjust. And so there are a lot of places on earth where sin is centralized and amplified and blatant, like Las Vegas, and yet they never seem to experience any destructive powers from nature. So again, consider the context and the context here is the jews who were the covenant people of god and they were under contract so to speak and what has happened here is god promised to curse them with natural disaster if they broke or despised his law and so what joel is it's just an example of god doing what he said he would do now i'm not saying that there is no correlation between our sin and god's chastening for whom the lord loves he's he chastens we, we simply cannot apply this, however, to the United States of America, nor can we apply natural disasters as the judgment of God upon an area because we believe the people in that area are wicked. So the context is an undated invasion of locusts on the southern kingdom of Judah. It is sent by God because of their covenant unfaithfulness or their sin, and the purpose of it is chastening or discipline. Uh, Joel makes it clear that this is not mother nature at work. This isn't an unfortunate coincidence of nature whereby the grasshoppers just happened to be passing through Judah at that time. Uh, this is not the devil attacking God's people. This isn't locusts as independent, free moral agents volitionally making attack upon the Jews. No, what this is, this is the design of the Lord. They are God's army, and they are being commanded by the Lord. These locusts are, as it says in chapter 2, verse 11, they are his army. And everybody, here's what I want you to notice, everybody is summoned to sit up and to take notice. Please follow along in your Bible, and if you are using the Pew Bible, you will notice that it is a brand new Bible. They just came in yesterday. You're looking at the book of Joel. Look at your own Bible with your own eyes and notice that everybody is supposed to pay attention. Chapter 1, verse 2, he addresses the elders, or the older people, and all the inhabitants of the land. In chapter 1, verse 5, he addresses the drunkards, bottle of red Bottle of white, it all depends upon your appetite. But this evening, sir, we have neither because the locusts have eaten up all the grapes. There is no wine. Scenes from a Judean restaurant. Chapter one, verse 11, he addresses the farmers. In chapter 113, he addresses the priest. In chapter one, verse 10, the ground itself mourns. And in chapter one, verse 18, the cattle are even perplexed and the sheep suffer. Uh, And notice that it's not just the base staple food, the crops and the vineyards, but it's also the specialty items that are being impacted by this. In chapter one, verse 12, the pomegranate, the palm, the apple tree, they are stripped down to the bark. As for anything else that is edible, it is G-O-N-E gone. And notice who is consuming it. There are four types of locusts that are mentioned. The cutting locust. swarming locust, the hopping locust, and the destroying locust. Now, this does not refer to four different types of bugs. It probably refers to four different invasions. So the first group comes through, they eat just about everything, but they leave a little bit behind. And the second group of swarming locusts come through, they eat what the first group left behind. Is there a little bit left? There's a tiny bit left. And the hopping locusts come through, and they get that. And then there is just a little bit of greenery here and there, and here come the destroying locusts, and they eat everything that is left to the point where there is nothing left, not even bark on the trees. And Joel's message is this, Old people, senior citizens, young people, you've got nothing to eat. Drunkards, you have no grapes for your wine. Farmers, all of your work is for naught. Priest, we cannot have a worship service because there are now no means to worship the Lord because everything has been eaten. There is no subset of our population that is untouched by these bugs. And furthermore, we can't look forward. Wow, things are bad in America right now. They're bad, but we believe that this is gonna pass and that things are going to get better. Can't look back. Some people can look back and they can say, We are making it through this financial disaster now in America because we saved our money for the rainy day and this is the rainy day now. And so we have a few bucks in our pocket and we can make it through. Things are going to get better. We saved some money in the past, so we're going to be okay. Joel says, no, you can't look back and you can't look forward. Look in chapter one, verse 17. There is nothing that will help you. The seed shrivels under the clods that's the looking forward the storehouses that's looking back are desolate and and the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up you can't look forward you can't look back there is absolutely no hope total devastation all sectors of the population have suffered and there is no hope and along with the produce as i said earlier the morale of the people is at an all-time low Chapter 1, verse 12, gladness has dried up. Chapter 1, verse 16, no joy, no gladness in the house of God. Even when you go somewhere to worship where you're supposed to be singing praises to God, there's no happiness in church. Chapter 2, verse 6, they place fear and anguish in the hearts of the people. And so not only is everything gone, but the morale of the people is down. What's happening here as the Jews are going through this and the exact instrument that God is using is very intentional and the Jews would have known exactly what this meant. Do you know what you would be thinking if you were a Jew and the instrument that God was using to wipe you out was locust? You would immediately start to think back to the days in Egypt when God used locusts to wipe out or to weaken the Egyptians. Exodus chapter 10, verse 15. They, the locust, covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Uh, Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. So it's not just the physical suffering. It's, it's not just being, being downcast over all this. It's now the shame of being treated like Egyptians. But keep in mind, they are not Egyptians. They are Jews. They are the covenant people of God. But they are being disciplined severely for their sin as if they were Egyptians. This is a scene from a Judean restaurant. It is empty. It is boarded up. And if they were not his chosen people, the story would end here. He would judge them. He would condemn them. That would be the end of them. We would never read about them in history. It would be over. And the, fact, the way that we know that is because when you get to Joel chapter 3, which I'm not going to go into depth on this, this evening, but I will tell you what Joel chapter 3 is about. Joel 3 is about God judging the nations who are not his covenant people. And there is no mercy and and, and no call for repentance and no hope. They are without God in the world. Everybody mentioned in chapter 3, he speaks of restoring the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, his covenant people. But what he speaks about with reference to the nations is judgment. Look in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. 3, 12 and 13. Let the nations or the Gentiles stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat because we're going to have a battle. For there I will sit to judge all surrounding nations. Put put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the winepress is full the vats overflow for their evil is great you know what this is saying this is saying quite literally he's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored it 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 is it is really bad i and and chapter 3 verse 10 is a verse i have heard my entire life but until i studied it in its context i didn't know what it meant Chapter three, verse 10, it says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears and let the weak say, I am a warrior. You know what this is saying? God is mocking them and he's being sarcastic and he says, get your hands on anything that you can because we're gonna have a battle. You become a warrior. You, you got a pruning hook, make it into a spear and let's go out and let's have a battle and let's see how you make out. God is mocking them by saying, take your farming equipment and turn it into a weapon. What God is saying to the nations in chapter three is, I don't have any more time for you and I'm going to judge you and there is no hope for you. And so it says in 3.16 that the Lord roars from Zion and in chapter three, verse 19, Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness. But as I point this out, I do it only to tell you that God is not saying that to His covenant people. He is displeased with His covenant people, but He is not judging them. He is not damning them. What He's doing, He is chastening them, and there is a difference. And He is chastening them with a view to getting their attention with the goal of correcting them and bringing them to repentance. And likewise, we are the covenant people of God, are we not? God has made a covenant with us through the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we are saved. The reason we are saved is because the gospel is of first importance. But yet, even though we are saved, we are what? Prone to wander, and Lord, we feel it, and we are prone to leave the God we love. And what does God do with his covenant children when we start to wander away into disobedience? He does not damn us. He does not write us off. He does not condemn us as he does the Gentiles in chapter 3. No, what he does is he chastens us. He spanks us. He inflicts merciful pain on us just enough to get our attention. But for Judah, it came in the form of locust. For you, it might come in the form of sickness or some sort of financial hardship or maybe depression or maybe some sort of relational discord. God can do many things in order to get your attention. But when God is coming after you to get your attention and he brings discomfort into your life, He's doing it in love, and he's doing it with a view toward winning you back. There is no such offer being made to the nations. This is only for the covenant people of God. And beautifully, there is no guesswork involved in how we, the people of God, are supposed to get back to him. I think it's amazing that in the midst of this complete economic collapse that God gives countless commands to his people, basically saying, you're in a really bad spot right now, and the reason you're in a bad spot right now is because you've gotten yourself there, and you know you're in a bad spot because you don't have anything to eat. Now, you want to get back? You want to get back to me? Here are some commands, which brings us to point number two, the commands, or as Billy Joel would say, honesty. We don't have time in this overview sermon to cover every command that God gives, but hopefully I will give you a large enough sample that you'll be able to see that God has provided a very clear path for them to get back into a relationship with him, back into restoration. In chapter 1, verse 3, he starts off by telling them to remember, and don't ever forget this. In chapter one, verse five, the command is this. The drunkards are to wake up and to wail. In chapter eight, they are to lament. In chapter 1, verse 11, the farmers are to be ashamed and to wail. In chapter 1, verse 13, the priests are to put on sackcloth and lament and wail. In chapter 1, verse 14, notice what they are supposed to do. These are the commands which are given in order to get back right with God. Who knows? Chapter 1, verse 14. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 14. Consecrate a fast call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So regardless of what your doctrine of fasting might be in light of the new covenant, it's really clear that what God is calling for are the people to come together in an act or a show of solidarity and begin to cry out maniacally to God for mercy. Chapter 2, verse 1 blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all of the inhabitants of the Lamb tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Again, this is a collective call for repentance. Blow the trumpet so that everybody knows it's time to come and to bow before the Lord. Again, in chapter 2, verse 15, there's this same sentiment Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. We're not just going to do this individually, but we are going to come together and we are going to mourn before the Lord and fast and cry out for mercy. The strongest commands are given in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents over disaster. Here's what you have to do. Take your heart and rip it, not just your garments. It's a call for repentance a sincere call of repentance from the heart, one that includes fasting and weeping. But more than that, one which includes genuine repentance. See, apparently what had happened is these people had previously gone through some sort of repentance previously where they literally symbolically ripped their garments but their hearts were not changed at all. And so they go before God and they put on this show and they can generate, you know, there are people that can generate tears. So they get these tears coming out and they have volume in their their their, their voices and they can get down on their knees and get down on their faces and they can rip their garments and they can say, I am so sorry. God, please have mercy upon me. Perhaps they have done that before. At least that is what is being implied here. And God says, I'm tired of you ripping your clothes. I want you to rip your heart. I want you to mean it several years ago two little girls got in a fight in the lawn of the church not a joke true story so the two mothers get involved the two little girls come together one little girl is made to say to the other girl I'm sorry and the other little girl said I forgive you but sorry means that you won't do it again never were more profound words said in reference to repentance. Sorry means that you will not do it again. And sadly, the elders have watched as people have sometimes come into my office for a meeting and they have wept and they have promised that they will never do it again. And there seems to be sincerity there, but we have learned that tears are a good starting point but they are only a starting point. Genuine repentance is demonstrated when we rip our hearts and not our garments and we actually change. And David says in Psalm 51, 17 that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise these. And Joel chapter 2, 13 says that, that, that it, it is, it is a reminder that God sees through our fake tears and through our fake contrition, and he commands us to be genuinely brokenhearted. When the Lord's chastening hand hits us, we will indeed be broken over our sin. There's another command here before we move on to point number three. This is a command that will take you perhaps putting on your thinking cap a little bit. This is a command to pray. Pray. But notice how the call for prayer is worded. It, 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 it is very profound. Think as I read this verse, 2.17. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is your God? Did you notice the content of the prayer? or the call for prayer. The call for prayer is this. Pray, and when you pray, oh Lord, please, why should your name be a byword among the nations? Because Lord, if you let us be destroyed, you're going to look bad. And even though we're destroyed, Lord, people are going to say, Look what he did with his covenant people. And so, Lord, remember your covenant. Remember how this makes you look. This is exactly what Moses prayed when he came down off of the mountain and he sees the people partying naked and he sees the golden calf and he sees Aaron making up excuses and he is furious and God says, get out of the way. I'm gonna destroy them. I'm gonna start all over again with you. And Moses starts to pray and he says, God, please don't do it. Please don't do it, for if you do it, the nations will say, he brought these people out just to destroy them. God, if you do this, it's going to make you look bad. And so, Lord, for your glory, would you please have mercy upon us? And Joel chapter 2, verse 17 says, when you pray, you pray for the glory of God and say, God, I know I have a lot to lose in this, but, Lord, you have more to lose in this than I do. And so, Lord, for your glory... Will you please have mercy so that people will not look at you and be mocking you because you have abandoned us? That beautiful call for prayer. You see, the purpose of national discipline was to get the Jews to come back to the Lord, and that is the purpose of personal discipline or church discipline. It is loving pain that is inflicted upon the people of God so that they will repent and they will be restored. That is the point of the book of Joel. And every one of the commands, and I didn't get to all of them, but even the ones that I got to, every command in the book of Joel, whether it is awake, or wail, or lament, or fast, or blow a trumpet, or gather together and pray, or return, or rend your heart and not your garments, or say to the Lord, spare your people, all of these are given in love as a path whereby the people of God who are wandering can get themselves back into a right relationship with God. We as New Covenant believers have a similar path with reference to our heart. But we have a much easier path because we don't have to consecrate anything because there is a mediator, Jesus Christ, who immediately gives us access to the throne of God and a sincere broken heart that you have which goes before God and says, based upon the merits of Jesus Christ, I am ready to do business with you, God. I understand you have disciplined me, and I want to be restored to you. Lord, please help me to do that. What does it require? It requires honesty, and honesty is such a lonely word, but you need it in order to get back to God broken and humble hearts actively seek to be restored. Which brings us to the third and final point, and that is the culmination, or I'm in a new covenant state of mind. Now, one phrase that keeps coming up over and over again in the book of Joel is the phrase, the day of the Lord. So it appears not to be a 24-hour day. It, it is not even referring to a single event uh, the entirety of everything that is happening with the locust invasion in chapter 1, verse 15 is referred to as the day of the Lord. And then in chapter 3, when God judges the nations, that is the day of the Lord. But the main usage of the word day of the Lord is what we see in chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And this will take us into the new covenant. Listen to how the day of the Lord is used in 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. That's the new covenant. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome, here we go, day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. Hang on to that word, E-S-C-A-P-E, E-S-C-A-P-E. There will be those in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there who shall escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors be those whom the Lord calls. The phrase day of the Lord is defined as written here by Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. Acts chapter 2, the disciples are gathered waiting for the promise of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit falls upon them and they start to speak in different languages. Sounds like they're drunk because it's only nine, but it's only nine o'clock in the morning, and it said this is really strange that these guys are hammered at nine o'clock in the morning. But I mean, if you listen to them, it's just a wow. It's just like everybody is speaking a different language, and it just sounds very chaotic. And Peter says in Acts chapter two, now these guys aren't drunk like you think, but here's what Peter says in Acts two sixteen, but this is. This is, this is what is happening right now. This is, I really hope you get this. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel 2, 28 through 32a. You see, the last days that Peter was referring to here are not the last days at the end of the world, but these were the last days of the covenant people of Israel. And a new covenant was about to be initiated because on this day, the new covenant church was born. He was in a new covenant state of mind. And everything that happened that day, the tongues, they were given as a sign. What kind of a sign? A sign to unbelieving Jews that judgment was coming. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. That is for unbelieving Jews, letting them know that judgment is going to come. Come when? In AD 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed. A sign of impending judgment for Jews. And you'll say, what in the world does that have to do with the destruction of Jerusalem? Well exactly what Joel says in chapter 2 verse 32 for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls here you have Jerusalem Jews are inside Rome comes against Jerusalem and they surround the city Everybody who was in that city who remembered the words that Jesus said got out of there and they escaped some Jews actually went back into the city. It's like going back into a fire. Now they are surrounded and there is a siege. And 1.1 million of them died when Rome was able to breach the wall. Jesus told them in Matthew 24, 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Get out of Dodge. Jesus says the same thing in Luke 21, verses 20 and 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. Get as far away from Jerusalem as you can. That is the escape that is being referred to in Joel. That is the great and terrible day of the Lord that is being referred to in Joel. Joel's prophecy is not about the modern charismatic movement which began in 1960 and the early rain and the latter rain. It is not about the modern Pentecostal movement which began at Azusa Street in California in 1906. It is certainly not referring to what John Hagee and all of the nonsense that he is spouting about the blood moons and everything that is to happen in our generation. It is not happening in our generation and it is not happening in the future. This is a prophecy which was prophesied and Peter says it is being fulfilled right now. He is referring to the time between the day of Pentecost and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And what were some of those things that were happening during that time? Well, one of the things that was happening during that time is both your sons and your daughters would prophesy. And when you get to Acts chapter 21, you see a guy by the name of Philip, and he has four unmarried daughters who prophesy. And in First Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about a woman praying or prophesying with her head uncovered. Prophesying was something that women did during that time. Why don't women prophesy in our church today? It is because the great and terrible day of the Lord has come and that sign gift is no longer in operation. It is the same reason why men don't prophesy in our church any longer because Paul said prophecy will cease in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But there were those who called upon the name of the Lord and they were saved. And they evidenced their faith by remembering the words of Jesus who told them to get out of Jerusalem and run for the hills. Specifically that is the culmination of the day of the lord at least that's how i interpret it but maybe i'm wrong i often am so let's just say for the sake of argument that i am wrong and you think that it refers to something else okay fine i'm i'm all ears let, i mean let me know what you think it means but, but we got to play by the rules here whatever it means peter clearly said it happened on the day of Pentecost. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So, whether it's locusts as a form of judgment on the nations or any other form of judgment on the nations, the day of the Lord is judgment. And in closing, I want to remind you of my day of judgment. For me, my day of judgment came on Mount Calvary. That was the time and the place where God totally and completely judged my sin once and for all. That's where Jesus died in my place. Wrath and sure condemnation were my just reward. And the reason why is because I'm a sinner in thought, word, and deed. And my sin earned me far worse than a locust invasion. I deserved eternal hell. And so do you. But God, who is rich in mercy, transferred my sin and my guilt to Christ. And because Jesus took my sin and he took my punishment, the day of the Lord, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, it fell on Jesus on that cross that day when he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did God forsake and crush and punish Christ to death that day? It's because of my great sin and because of his great love, Christ died for our sins and he rose again by the blood of the eternal covenant. He is alive today and there is a promise that comes through this prophet to the apostle Paul in the book of Romans. So it goes from Joel to Paul, from me to you. And it says this, Romans ten thirteen. for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The day of the Lord awaits you. It's appointed unto men to die once, and after this, the judgment. And knowing that that day is coming, and you are going to have to bow before him, why not then today call upon the name of the Lord and escape? The Lord Jesus Christ, who took the judgment of God's wrath upon the cross, is your only means of salvation. So, hear this, Joel says, Tell it to your children, and tell your children to tell it to their children. Awake, and sleep, and lament, and be ashamed, and wail, and cry out to the Lord, and sound an alarm, and tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. But please know also that he is gracious and merciful, and whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Allow me please to close this sermon by praying Joel 2, 26. You shall eat in plenty, and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Amen.